0: If you, your parents, somebody in your immediate family, your parents, your siblings, your kids have been divorced, raise your hand. Okay, most of the people here. Uh, In our congregation, we love uh, marriage. We love marriage. It's a reflection of the fact that we believe that God loves marriage too. It was his idea. We pursue it out of reverence for him. But we live in a world where marriage uh, where marriage in, in particular and the idea of marriage itself is crumbling. It was not that long ago that either Time or Newsweek had a cover story and the cover story was, is marriage necessary? Uh, the chances of you reaching your 25th wedding anniversary are less than 50%. Uh, divorce rates are up. The number of men and women who only marry once is uh, in life are down. Now, most of you have probably heard that the divorce rates inside the church are identical to those outside the church. That's actually not true. In fact, um, I read a, a study not too long. It's, it's true of people who self-identify as Christians, but it's not true for people who are very involved in their congregation. Let me read a paragraph from a news story. I saw it recently. Brad Wilcox is a sociologist at the University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, and he found that active conservative Protestants, that would be us, who regularly attend church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. Now listen to this, nominally attending conservative Protestants are 20% more likely to divorce compared to secular Americans. So for the sustainability of your marriage, it's better for you to not go to church at all than to be just on the fringes of a church. Uh, regardless of the fact that our statistics are a little better than we had thought, uh, divorce touches almost everyone in some way. Uh, most of the people that you work with, most of the people that you know, um, either have some form of ex in their life, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, an ex-son-in-law, an ex-sister-in-law, some sort of ex in some way. Uh, and we live in this world, and we work living in this world, the reality of that, down into the seedbed of our faith, and we, we follow Christ in the midst of this chaos. Uh, the prophet Malachi helps us with that a bit in chapter two of his prophecy, and I 'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Malachi chapter two. Uh, Malachi is, uh, as we have said several times, right at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, right before the Gospels. You'll find it there. And I want you to turn your attention to Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Uh, Today we're going to consider this paragraph that has been described as the passage with the most elevated view of marriage in all of the Old Testament. And I'm going to read the passage before we begin here. Uh, Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. You follow along as I read. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And and why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering his garment with violence, as covering himself with violence, as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. As you would expect from Malachi, this passage begins with a focus on the problems that God's people were facing. Uh, Malachi is a book of the Bible where God shouts at his people. Um, I think I've described to you before my uh, great-grandparents. My great-grandfather was a curmudgeonly old man. And when he did not feel like listening to his wife, he would turn his hearing aid down. He was reading the newspaper and she would be, I'll use the word he might use, yammering on. And uh, so he'd turn his hearing aid down. And she, noticing this, would start to speak louder and louder and louder to him so she would be heard. Then, um, for some inexplicable reason, uh, he would, I think just to annoy her, turn his hearing aid back on and back up. And then after she spoke to him, he would, he would look at her and he'd say, why are you shouting at me? I can hear you just fine. <laughs> See, the people who heard these words first from Malachi, they had turned down their hearing aids. And, and God is, is speaking to them sharply, loudly. And that's how almost all the sections in the book of Malachi uh, begin. Here's what I want to do to, to tackle this passage before us. Lord willing, we're going to spend uh, two weeks looking at these passages of Scripture. Um, today, we're going to look at the more positive side of this passage. Verse 16 says, God says, I hate divorce. Um, the reason God hates divorce is because divorce is the destruction of something that He created to be good, and He created to be fruitful, and He created to give you pleasure. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about that positive side today, the good thing that divorce destroys. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk more specifically uh, about divorce uh, itself. Before we proceed, though, this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through the text so you get an idea of what's happening in these verses, so you you understand and can put the pieces uh, together. Verse 10 begins with three very sharp questions about the unity that the people have. They have one Father, they were created, that is God, they're created by one God, and, and then he says, Why are you profaning the covenant? You have one father, you have one God, one covenant with this God, and you're breaking that covenant. This is the indictment that he's he's giving them. They're violating that covenant in two ways that are explained in the rest of the verse verses in verses 11 and 12. Here's one way they're breaking the covenant. They're breaking the covenant by marrying outside of the covenant. That is, the men, men are the primary focus of this passage, the primary audience. They are marrying women who are not followers of the one true God. They are, in verse 10, sons of the one true God Father, and they're marrying, verse 11, daughters of foreign gods. This is something that is a huge concern in the Hebrew Scriptures. God warns the people repeatedly, do not marry people that are outside of the covenant, that do not follow me. Um, Listen to Deuteronomy 7, and it will explain to you why God gave this command. Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, I'll just read it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and he lists them, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them uh, totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Here's why. Why is God concerned about this? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now notice here that the issue is not racial. That is not the concern of the Bible. The issue is covenantal. Now, The Bible uses racial terms because those in those... Uh, races or ethnicities were outside of the covenant, but that's not God's concern. God's concern is for the covenant. Um, It was disastrous for the people to marry those who were not allied to God, and the history of the Bible shows the disaster that it was. These men who are true followers of Yahweh or these women who are true followers of Yahweh would walk down the street and they'd see a foreigner who worshipped another god, think that person was awfully cute, and they'd get married and disaster would come. In fact, uh, it's very serious, so serious that in verse 11 it calls this a detestable thing or your translation might say an abominable thing thing. This is an abomination. An abomination is the, serious, the most serious offense that you could commit in the Old Testament scriptures. It was the reason that the, the um, Jews were sent into exile. It was the reason those Canaanite nations were driven off their land because of their abominable behavior before God. This is serious. They're marrying outside of the covenant. The second way in which they're violating the covenant is in verses 13 through 16, and it's the issue of divorce. The text does not say why the people are getting divorced, but the context suggests to me that that this passage is aimed at middle-aged men who are divorcing their middle-aged wives in order to marry younger women from foreign tribes. That this is the ancient equivalent of looking for a trophy wife. Uh, they're divorcing the wives of their youth, the text says, and they're marrying these younger women who are not followers of the one true God. And God was interposing Himself. He was interrupting their worship. You see that in verse 13. God is not answering their prayers. Reminds you of 1 Peter 3, doesn't it? Live with your wife in an understanding way. Otherwise, God will so that your prayers will not be hindered. God's interrupting his relationship with the people because of their unfaithfulness to one another. And in the midst of these specific charges, these specific covenant violations, Malachi has written here a rich passage about marriage and what God intends for your marriage. Um, What does he want for you? That's that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. What is God's intention for your marriage? We're committed to the fact that that the best way to live is as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And what does faithfully following Christ in marriage look like, as Malachi tells us? Here this morning, I want to share with you three things that God intends for your marriage. Now, if you're not married uh, and you have no intention of someday getting married, why would you listen to something like this? Remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He was talking to uh, uh, Timothy about elders and men who would lead in the congregation. And, And he said they must manage their household well. If you don't know how to manage a house, you don't know how to manage the church of God. There are overlapping skills between marriage and leading in the church and influencing people in the congregation. So even if you're not married or have no intention of someday getting married, What God says about marriage is important for you as you think about the role that you might have in the congregation. What does God intend for your marriage? Three things. Number one, God intends that in your marriage you express your loyalty to Him. You express your loyalty to Him. Uh, there are a number of repeated phrases in this passage, and I wonder if you notice how often the word broken faith is in this passage. You see that five times it appears in these verses. Verse 10, right at the end, you are breaking faith with one another. Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. Verse 14, in the middle, it says, You have broken faith with her. Verse 15, At the end, do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And verse 16, right at the end, do not break faith. (laughs) Malachi is serious about this. That that word break faith um, is a word that means treachery or betrayal. It means to to betray someone or to act with treachery toward them. Um, Treachery is actually one of the key words that the Bible uses to describe uh, sin, These men, by their marriage choices, have betrayed or acted treacherously to the God who is their Father and their Creator. They've violated what God loves. See, as God intends it, marriage is your opportunity for you to honor the relationship that you have with Him, to express that relationship that you have with Him, to live it out, But these people, for them, it has become a way to profane the covenant. They're marrying these women, and by their marriage, they're saying, God's covenant matters so little to me that I don't even think about it. It doesn't matter to me uh, who I marry. It has no effect on my relationship. That's how little, how small God's word is to me, how little it matters to me. Uh, this this principle here, I think, of expressing your loyalty to him uh, speaks to us in, in many, many ways. It, it prods us about how you might enter marriage. See, this passage reminds us that your first priority for whoever you're going to date or court or marry should be someone who shares your commitment to Christ. Now, uh, I'm, this is not news to you, I'm Sure. This is the appropriate time for me, the pastor, to quote 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? You've heard that before. This is a reminder, though, that your spouse will affect your faith. He or she will push you in one direction or another. Sometimes in the church we talk about marrying fellow believers uh, because we believe it's the safest choice. You talk to somebody, um, some young adult, and and you say, so uh, tell me about the type of person that you'd like to marry someday. Well, they have to be a Christian, and once they get that over, then they tell you about the things that are more important, really important. They've got to like soccer and movies and to go shopping and woodworking. I don't know. They give this list. Christian is the one. Once we get out of that, then we get into the really important part. So you go up to somebody and you say, do you trust in Christ? Yep, good, let's talk, because now we can find out about each other, right? as if it's something to check off, as if it's the safest choice, as if your goal is to find a nice Christian young man or a nice Christian young lady. But the stakes are higher. They're much higher than getting something on a checklist. See, you desperately need someone who is going to help you honor God with your life. And no one's going to affect that more than the person that you marry. Uh, Ray Clenenden uh, wrote a commentary on Malachi. Listen to what he said. The corruption of the human heart is already a strong enough foe to righteousness without inviting enticement to sin into one's home through marriage to one who is still in bondage to the spiritual powers of darkness. You don't need any help walking away from Christ. You need all the help you can get being pushed toward Christ. So marry that way. Understand you will almost always settle at the spiritual level of the least committed member of your relationship. Um, think about the person that you're dating or the person that you're interested in dating if they have different standards than you for your participation in church or your commitment to the Bible and prayer or standards for what you watch uh, uh, or um, how you spend your money there will be an inexorable pull in your life down to those lowest levels this is especially true if you are the female in the relationship it almost always happens that the husband will take his wife to whatever level he is at, and if it's lower than yours, that's where you will end up. I appreciate what John Piper's teenage daughter once told him about her dating life. She said to him that she wanted to get so lost in God that any potential suitor would have to find her in Him. Isn't a great line? So think about the person that you're dating. Does your future with him or her allow you to express your allegiance to Jesus Christ? And some of you are sitting here thinking, yes. And I say, why? And you say, he's so dreamy. And my answer to the question is, my answer to you is, he's not dreamy enough that you should be a fool. Open your eyes. Now, this principle about breaking faith also speaks to how you conduct yourself in your marriage. Your marriage is an opportunity to honor your relationship with God. Your work as a husband or as a wife is to reflect that commitment that you have to Jesus Christ. You take the things you know, the gospel, and you bring it into your marriage and it helps you. It, 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 it defines and constructs and, and, and fences your relationship. If you're a follower of Christ, you bring in a host of resources with the gospel And one of those resources is realism about your relationship and about you. Um, In a a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about the promise of a good relationship and how God is is intentioned for your marriage, that that you be companions with the person uh, to whom you are married. But uh, let's be honest this morning. when, When the Bible describes marriage in all its glory, it's talking about something that is completely unnatural to us. Love somebody like Christ of the church, respect somebody and and show love to them, really forever, the rest of my life. A few minutes ago, uh, Pastor Scott read about uh, the first marriage in Genesis two, how wonderful it was. Uh, Adam and Eve, there they were in the Garden of Eden. They didn't have any in laws at all. Um, they were there. <laughs> Somebody said that. I can't believe you said that. Okay, they were. Um, what does the text say? That, that does not what it praises. It says they were they were unashamed, naked, and unashamed in each other's presence. They were perfect. They lived in a perfect place. They had a perfect relationship with one another. They had a perfect relationship with God. And God gave them one command to follow, and what did they do? They broke faith. Right? They betrayed the relationship that they had with God. They were treacherous. With God, they chose to eat the the fruit uh, that instead of follow God, and they introduced into this world this contagion known as sin. And that inclination to treachery before God has passed on to all of us, and we live out of it every single day. See, marriage is a relationship that calls for loyalty and kindness and service, and I am inclined naturally to be loyal to nobody but me and to be kind to my wants and to serve my desires. That's how I naturally am. This is what sin does. It turns you in on yourself. It does not make you inclined to do the necessary work to sustain any relationship. And and when the Bible describes God's ideal for marriage, it describes something that is completely counterintuitive. It is much easier, it's much more natural for me to, to sabotage my marriage than to build it. And the same thing is true for you. If you're a follower of Christ, you bring this in. You know this. You know, if you're a follower of Christ, that when you stood across from that lovely young lady or that handsome man, though uh, he or she was uh, showered, shaved, shaved, Uh, scented, and uh, and, uh, she was wearing the most expensive dress she'll ever wear. You knew when you made those vows that underneath all that glitz, glow, beauty, and perfection was just a dark, rotten, sinful heart. You you know that. It's what the Bible says. And it was in you, too. (laughs) Some of you may have seen this week a quote from uh, P.J. Smith. He's a pastor in South Africa. Listen to this. He said, husbands, be generous with your wife's faults. They were probably what prevented her from getting a better husband than you. <laughs> Recently, the last space shuttle took off from Cape Canaveral. Uh, I saw the first space shuttle go up into space uh, in, in the 80s. Um, the, the space shuttle's program is, is now over. Um, at liftoff, the shuttle has... In it, 2 million pounds of solid propellant and 500,000 gallons of liquid propellant. That's a lot of gas in that space shuttle, a lot of fuel. Do you know that 83% of all the fuel that a space shuttle will use during its entire mission is used in the first few seconds of its flight? It has to overcome the pull of gravity in order to get that massive thing into the air. What force is there on earth that can help me overcome my natural bent towards selfishness so that I can do in marriage what God intends? I'm talking here this morning about something that is not just difficult, it's it's impossible. It cannot naturally be done. Marriage is an institution created by God in order to put you in a place where you are consciously dependent on a daily basis on God's grace. That's what marriage is for for it's it's actually what you are saved to we use the word saved a lot right well we can talk about being saved from something and saved to something as followers of Jesus Christ we are saved from God's wrath because of my sin against uh, uh, and my treachery before God I deserve God's wrath I deserve to bear his wrath against sin forever But Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He paid the penalty that I deserved. He died three days later. He came out of the grave and he's sitting right now at the right hand of God. And the Bible says that God offers life and forgiveness to anyone who will take it by trusting in Christ. He hears and answers every call. Oh, Jesus, in your name, through your work, please forgive me and give me life. (laughs) There's no one who's ever prayed that prayer that God has not answered. We're saved from God's wrath. But then, once we cross that line from unforgiveness to forgiveness, we're saved to something. You're saved to a life of daily dependence upon Him. And if I know that, if I'm aware of the, the gospel in my life, and I bring those resources into my marriage, um I I I I I'm equipped here to live out this gospel with my wife. See, because I know about human tendency to violate covenants, I know that my spouse will fail me, and I know that I will fail her. Because I've been forgiven, I have the resources to forgive her. She's going to sin, I'm going to sin. Because of Christ, we in marriage can can extend forgiveness to one another. This is how I honor God, how I express my loyalty to God in my relationship. I live out of the resources of the gospel, even in my marriage. Somebody once asked the question, why does the New Testament not talk about marriage? I mean, there's a few key passages. Why is it not there more? <laughs> the New Testament talks about marriage all the time. Anytime it says something like, love your neighbor, it's talking about marriage, because you don't have a closer neighbor. Uh If our common allegiance is to Jesus Christ, uh, we can recognize that together we have the opportunity to cultivate spiritual intimacy with one another, which I frankly find to be the most challenging aspect of marriage. Uh, Before Kathy and I were married, uh, we went to a pastor's conference on uh, marriage and the man who was there uh, speaking said that he, he, he counsels pastors in troubled marital situations. And he told us that that most of the pastors that he talks to struggle to pray with their wives. Maybe you don't struggle with that Um, like I do. I I hope not. um, Kathy and I talk about why cultivating spiritual intimacy is a struggle for us. I think it has its roots in um, (laughs) our our stupid uh, spiritual competitiveness and self-righteousness. Uh, I'll even be more candid, I suppose. No one knows more of my areas of struggle in life and my failures than she does. Nobody knows them more. On, on this whole earth, nobody knows what a rotten sinner I am like my wife. The same thing is true of you. And, and no one, by her presence in my life, uh, makes me confront those struggles about me that I see and failures than than she does. Sometimes it's hard to pray with someone when you have to pray so much about someone. I'm my biggest marriage problem. I bring it in. God put your spouse in your life for your growth and holiness. Uh, he or she is one of the chief means of grace in your life. God gave you somebody that knows your faults more than anybody else and has an opportunity to extend grace to you like nobody else. And, and, and when you live in marriage as an expression of your allegiance to Christ, you'll embrace that person as God's gift for your holiness. God intends your marriage to express your loyalty to Him. Number two, we'll move on here. God intends for you to enjoy your relationship with your spouse. To enjoy your relationship with your spouse. It's where you express your loyalty to Him and it's where you enjoy your partnership. Now that word partner is, is important here. It, you'll find it here in verse 14. Um, We'll read it again. It says, You ask why? That is, why is God not answering our prayers? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Um, Your translation might say not partner, but but companion. This is the only place in the Old Testament where it's used of a a woman. The verb form of this is, is the word to join or to bind, to bond. And it most often refers to friendship between men. It describes a partnership in which you have a common interest. Um, it's sometimes popular to think in history uh, that in places or in, in ages in history in which women are second-class citizens or poorly regarded, it's popular to think that that's the Bible's fault, that Christianity subjugates women. Um, Maybe, in some instances, but I think it has more to do with the fact that the Bible is poorly read than that the Bible is lived out. Uh, Here, God describes uh, a wife as a partner, a companion, someone with whom you share life. Uh, um, It it does not describe, uh, nobody else in the world talked about women this way. Nobody else in the ancient world talked about women this way. Uh, she's your partner. She's not your slave, your property, your maid, your cook, your laundress. She's your partner. She's your companion. It was actually the influence of the gospel uh, that, that raised, that changed the role of women in society. It's what the gospel does. If you want to know more about this, you should read a great book by uh, Robert Stark. It's called The Rise of Christianity. When the gospel came to Rome, the Roman world, it elevated everyone. Everybody whom society marginalized, the gospel elevated. I'm reminded of what uh, Mother Teresa said in a national prayer breakfast. Several years ago, I had several concerns about Mother Teresa's understanding of the gospel, but she enunciated the worldview of Christ well at this moment when she said this. She was talking about abortion, and as she was standing in front of this crowd and at the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, the President and Mrs. Clinton were there, and uh, the Vice President, Al Gore, and his wife were there, um, and, and she said to them, don't kill your babies, give them to us. We will take care of your babies. And, and that's what the gospel did. That's how the gospel transformed the Roman world. They went everywhere and said, don't throw people out, we'll take them. And they did. Your spouse is your companion. She's your companion for life. Are, are you treating her that way? Are you treating him that way? See, God has, has put you together. This is what he does in your marriage. Are you pushing each other away? God intends for you to live with that person that you're married to for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Whenever I perform a wedding ceremony, I always, toward the end, try to to say to people, your 50th wedding anniversary is going to be... And it's amazing how often I get the date wrong. But anyway, I always try to set this out. Think about this. 50 years... Are you acting today in a way that you're going to be happy with that spouse for the next 20 years, the next 30 years? In light of the fact that you're going to be 65 someday with this person or 75 with this person someday, does it, does it really matter that much if there's towels on the bathroom floor again? I mean, really? Is, is it is really that important I heard once of a uh, a, a woman who was uh, celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary and she, uh, the big party and one of her grandchildren came up and said to her, how how did you make it? What's the secret here of making it this far in marriage? And she said, well, I had a piece of advice given to me a long time ago before we got married. Somebody said that I should write down 10 faults of my husband for uh, which, uh, for the sake of our marriage, I would overlook so before you get married, write down those ten faults. And she said to the, her granddaughter, she said, I never made that list and never wrote it down, but every time your grandfather did something that annoyed me, I said, Lucky for him, that's one of the ten. <laughs> are you doing things that are pushing each other away? Uh, Lance Armstrong wrote about his marriage, you know, Lance Armstrong, the, the cyclist in his autobiography, and he writes about how cycling was the center of his life. Listen to what he said. All I knew was that in trying to do everything, we'd forgotten to do the most important thing. We forgot to be married. People warn you that marriage is hard work, but you don't listen. You talk about the pretty bridesmaids' dresses, but you don't talk about what happens next, How about how difficult it will be to stay or to rebuild. What nobody tells you is that there will be more than just some hard days. There will be some hard weeks and perhaps even some hard years. Now, verse 15 actually speaks to this in, in greater detail here, this companionship. Now, I will warn you here, verse 15 is perhaps one of the most difficult verses in all the Old Testament to translate. The, to, to, it's, a, it's a hard text to translate. Um, the NIV and the ESV and the King James take a kind of a similar tack. Uh, and I think they're on the right track in translating the verse. The New American Standard is, is quite different from all of those. So if you have a New American Standard, it's, it's going to sound different. Verse 15 sounded different. Um, if the New American Standard is not what Malachi meant, at least what it says is true. <laughs> so we will give it that. But uh, verse 15, it says, God made you one. Has not the Lord made them one? You're one flesh. He he joined you together. That's what marriage is. Um, God could have made any sort of union. He could have made a a trio or a quartet. He could have made marriage polygamous. He did not do that. He made marriage between the two of you and he makes you one. And verse 15 alludes to one of the greatest tasks, the most challenging tasks that God gives you as one. Verse 15 in the middle says, Why did God make them one? Because he was seeking godly offspring, your spouse is your partner, and if God gives your children you children, your partnership will be vital in, uh, in the task of raising those kids now just as a tangent here, I think verse 15 I think that women's ministry Bible study will be thinking about these issues in the, the study that they're doing. Uh, I, I just think that uh, verse 15 addresses here one of the purposes of marriage. One of the purposes of marriage is to have children. It does, verse 15 does not say how many children. It does not say to maximize the number of children that you have. But it does say that if God's values matter to you, every marriage should be open to the gift of children. If you don't want to have kids... Ever at all, never, you shouldn't get married because that's one of the purposes for marriage. Your partners, your companions, your friends. A neighbor once said to me that, that he loves, one of the things he loves about marriage is that he gets to take his best friend with him wherever he goes. Is that, is that true about you? Do you get to take your best friend with you? Joyce Baldwin wrote this. Malachi is a quiet witness to a mutually satisfying marriage relationship, which, though begun in youth, does not become jaded with the passage of time. Has your relationship become jaded with the passage of time? Are you pushing each other apart? Not too long ago, uh, Claire and Jenna and I went to the Whitaker Center, the science center in Harrisburg. And uh, down on the, the first floor, they have these two seats that are they're facing each other like this. And those ch- the chairs are on on, on um, tracks. kind of like they're on train tracks, and they move back and forth this way. And at, at the science center, they're trying to demonstrate the transfer of energy. So you're supposed to sit down in the chairs uh, with a partner and face them, and put your hands together like this and push. And what you're supposed to see is that the energy that was in this uh, pushing transferred this way, moving you apart. Are are you pushing your spouse away from you? What are you going to do this week that's going to affirm the fact that she, that he is your partner, your, your, your covenant partner, your companion? There's one more intention that I would like to discuss here. We'll we'll just talk about it briefly. God intends for your marriage to, number one, express your loyalty to Him. Number two, He wants you to enjoy your partnership with your spouse. And number three, He wants you to execute your covenant promises. God intends for your marriage to be a place where you execute, where you fulfill your covenant promises. Now we talked last week about the word covenant and how important it is in Malachi. There's covenant language in this chapter. God has made a covenant with his people. That's true. There is also a covenant with the spouse, with your spouse. God here is the witness of that covenant, verse 15, 14, rather. And you promised to love them. You promised to be faithful to them. That's a shocking thing. Uh, You made marriage vows. You made a promise, no matter how many years ago, how you would treat somebody else, regardless of how they treat you back. You made a promise about how you would treat them for the rest of your life. Do you see how marriage puts you in a desperate situation? God is the witness. God presumes to intervene in your life when your marriage is on shaky ground. Maybe, maybe this discussion today in Malachi two is God speaking to you this morning about your relationship. Um, Malachi two ends with two repeated warnings. I want to draw your attention to these before we finish this morning. Two warnings at the end of Malachi. Look at the end of verse fifteen. Guard yourself in your spirit. And the end of verse 16, guard yourself in your spirit. This sounds very New Testament-ish, doesn't it? does it sound like Paul would write something like that? Guard your spirit. See, we usually think of the Old Testament as a portion of Scripture that's about the outside. Don't get divorced. That's an outside thing. Okay, I got that. Old Testament. New Testament, though, is the inside, except here, right? Guard your, your spirit. The word guard means to keep or to protect. It's used to refer to someone who, who uh, guarded a city or guarded a treasure. Malachi is saying to you, watch out. Watch your life. Look out for any uh, 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 growing bitterness or resentment or indifference or drifting in your marriage. Watch out. Are you allowing anger to fester? Or is there laziness in your life that threatens your marriage covenant? Do you remember the, the security situation in the United States after September eleventh? Do you remember what life was like from September twelfth on for the next few months? I mean, there were concrete barricades everywhere, weren't they? Every policeman you saw you were really thankful for, uh and and um, they were they were armed. Uh, my sister lives on a military base, and whenever she would go, uh, come and go, or when she would enter back into the base, they always mirror-checked her cars, popped the trunk, popped the hood, and they looked over that vehicle uh, scrupulously. Um, we watched one another skeptically. We, we participated in new security measures. We were on high alert. It's been almost uh, 10 years, and now our inclination is just to complain about those security measures. What a pain. What if you had that sort of vigilance in your soul, that September 2011 vigilance in your soul, that you were watching internal attitudes and practices that threatened your marriage like we were afraid of terrorists threatening us? It's what Malachi is calling you to do. He says, do it for Christ's sake. Do it to protect your covenant. Let's pray, shall we? Father, it is, it is happy for us to talk about this issue uh, that is so uh, prevalent. That is, um, uh, We watch marriages. M- most of us are married. Uh, this is a, a huge issue for us. And we're so thankful that your word speaks to us about it. It warns us. It corrects us. It challenges us. Father, this morning... I pray that you would, by your spirit, do a tremendous work in our midst, that we would have gospel-infused marriages in our congregation. It would be marked by forgiveness, that we would heed unity's call, that we would seek to serve one another as followers of Christ for Christ's sake. Uh, Father, we are in need of your grace, your tremendous grace to get us off the ground into what you intend. So we come before you gladly admitting our dependence upon you and welcoming uh, the reception of it through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.